0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, we're turning again in our Bibles to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel, and you'll find that chapter is on page one thousand. And 81 in your Pew Bible or church Bible. And this evening we're going to read from chapter 13, verse 18 through to verse 31. These uh, chapters, John 13, uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are often referred to as the farewell discourse of Jesus or the upper room discourse. Uh, He has gathered his twelve apostles with him on the evening of his passion. He spends several hours with them uh, at the Passover feast, as we noticed in chapter 13, verse 1. He has washed their feet, and he's going on for several chapters to teach them. And then, in a marvelous way, in chapter 17, he concludes the evening with them before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and is betrayed and arrested and then crucified. He gives us the the longest prayer, actually the longest prayer in the New Testament, and the longest prayer in the Gospels from our Lord Jesus. So let's read from chapter 13 and verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. He's talking about him being betrayed, of course, by Judas Iscariot. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who is the author of the gospel, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money... Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast, which was going to take place in the next seven days, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And when he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. As we turn to study the Scriptures, let's turn to the Lord to seek his help as we do so. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Word. We are conscious that Every part of it comes livingly to us, brought on the breath of your Holy Spirit. But we are conscious when we come to a section like this, and not least to a passage like this, that we are standing on particularly holy ground. And so we pray that you would find an entrance into our hearts through your word, that your Holy Spirit would find us where we are. That he would take us to who Jesus is and where Jesus is. And that coming to know ourselves better, we may be brought to know Christ better. And coming to know Christ better, we pray that we may be more useful in his heavenly kingdom. And this we pray in his name. Amen. When I was a young boy, I often used to go actually on my own to the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery in Glasgow, which I commend to you, to those of you who are not Glaswegians. It is a great place to visit. And in the uh, art gallery, there was one painting that I suppose, like multitudes of others, I went to see. Um, It wasn't Rembrandt's famous portrait of a knight in shining armor, which is probably the greatest portrait in the art gallery. It was the picture by that rather unusual artist, Salvador Dali, entitled Christ of St. John of the Cross. You may well have seen it. It's a picture of the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and immediately overhead, as it were, flying through the air is the cross of Christ, And Jesus outstretched arms, looking down over the Sea of Galilee to where the disciples are. Actually, it was such a popular painting among Christian people in Glasgow when I was a teenager that uh, many of them would have a copy of it in their Bibles. It was a kind of Protestant icon. St. John of the Cross was an immensely famous and significant, significant 16th century mystic. And uh, as I say, the picture was much beloved of Christian people. And it intrigued me. I remember as a teenager reading a book by the late Francis Schaeffer, whom some of you at least will remember, and the impact that he made on the evangelical world by... His interpretation of culture from a biblical perspective and the confidence he gave Christians to understand that the Word of God spoke to every situation in life. And uh, what Schaefer pointed out about Salvador Dali's famous painting was simply this, that in the painting, the cross never touched the earth. And the Christ of St. John was a heavenly Christ and not a Christ who had got his feet dirty and bowed his knees before his disciples, as he does here in John 13, and washed their dirty feet. He may have been the Christ of St. John of the Cross, but he was certainly not Christ of St. John. The apostle. If there is anything that gives us the key to John's gospel, it's the famous words in chapter 1, isn't it? The Word, that is, Christ the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is what John is seeing so marvelously as he describes this famous scene in the upper room where Jesus On the evening of his crucifixion, when none of the other disciples are willing to wash one another's feet because they seek pride of position, Jesus leaves his position at the head of the table, just as in a sense he had left his position at the right hand of the Father, and comes down to wash his disciples' dirty feet. And John helps us to understand that Jesus was teaching the disciples two lessons, which we've already studied. The first, that this was a picture of what he had come to do in order to save us from the filthiness of our sin. And the second, that he was not only showing them how he would become their savior, but he was also demonstrating to them what it would mean for them to have him as their example and be willing to wash each other's dirty feet, including, as John goes to great pains to emphasize, as Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot who betrayed him, the Christian would not only serve his or her friends, but the Christian, full of gospel grace, would serve and love and seek out his or her enemies. And now, in the section that we've read together, the atmosphere changes. The atmosphere had begun, I think, with a sense of embarrassment because of what Jesus was doing. But now we come to a part in the farewell discourse when, as night falls outside, as the passage indicates to us later. There is a sense in which it begins to penetrate this upper room where Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And there is a sense in these next verses of an intense heaviness of spirit. And John takes us through all that Jesus shows of himself just in these next few minutes. Uh, Presumably, what is described in these verses happens uh, within the space of five minutes. Jesus says something. John leans over. He sees Peter, perhaps they had fishermen sign language saying, ask him who he means, because he has said one of the twelve is going to betray him. And then unknown to all of the disciples, except apparently to John, he identifies the one who is going to betray him. And Judas Iscariot leaves the room, the disciples having no idea exactly what he is going to do. And we're told in these very dramatic words of John, and it was night. And immediately, as you would perhaps sense from our reading the atmosphere changes all over again. I want us to notice in these verses essentially three things that our Lord Jesus is doing. These verses are like one of these medieval triptychs that you sometimes see in old churches with three panels, three pictures that are connected together and tell a single story. The first panel, I think, is saying this to it. Our Jesus is troubled in spirit. John's gospel is full of witnesses, as you know. Witnesses against Jesus who seek to destroy Jesus. And in the course of the gospel, a series of witnesses is brought forward to defend Jesus. But it's only rarely that Jesus himself steps up into the witness box and himself testifies. So when John says Jesus testified, there's something very special about the significance of what will follow. And you notice what Jesus testified. It's very remarkable, really, I think. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. I want us to focus down on this just for a moment. Jesus is troubled in spirit. Now I'd be surprised if that's an unfamiliar experience to you. You know what it is to be troubled in spirit, to have the sense that either you yourself or your situation or the world in general is out of joint. You feel a sense of profound dis-ease. And there is a, there is a sense of no escape about the burden that presses down upon you. And this is the portrait that uh, John is giving to us of the Lord Jesus. I, I think uh, the first thing we need to ask is this. Is your Jesus a Jesus who has tasted distress of spirit? Is your Jesus a Jesus who has tasted distress of spirit? One of the things that often happens to us as very obviously now a minority grouping as Christians is that we spend so much time defending the deity of the Lord Jesus that we lose sight of his humanity. But the Bible Jesus is a Jesus who knew raw emotion. And because he was a pure and holy Jesus, he tasted raw emotion in its rawest possible form. And here John is telling us, the Lord of glory who came into the world, came into the world to taste this distress. It's actually very strong language. It's used elsewhere of Jesus later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will become very distressed. There's a sense of agitation, of emotion here of something unsettling, the balance and the poise and the reality of life. And he testifies to this trouble because someone in the room is going to betray him and that hurts deeply, profoundly. That's Jesus. And that's the Jesus we need to learn to know. We began our services this morning singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Well, how is Jesus able to help us? Because the Jesus of the Gospels is a Jesus who tasted profound distress. That verse Hebrews 13.8 that we were thinking about earlier on this evening, you you know what that means. I used to think that meant that Jesus was everlasting, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's not at all what it means. He is everlasting. That's not what that text means. That text means that the author of Hebrews who lived in his today was saying that today Jesus is the same as he was yesterday during the whole course of his incarnation, and he will be like that forever. And what John, who's thinking about Jesus is so similar to the thinking about Jesus of the author of the letter to the Hebrews, is saying to us here is weary one, bruised one, distressed one, of course you can come to Jesus. You who are weary and heavy laden, of course you can come to Jesus. Because he is not ignorant of distress. He was anciently described as the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And here his distress arises out of what from one point of view is an agonizingly human situation, that someone who once ate bread with him has now lifted up his heel against him. So Jesus in this first panel is a Jesus who is troubled in spirit. And now Jesus who appears in the next panel, which I think is in verses 23 through 27, is the Jesus who reveals his betrayer. And we are at an advantage here as people who have read John's Gospel because we know in advance who the betrayer is going to be. There have been hints earlier on in John's Gospel that Judas is the man. This whole section opens with Jesus washing his disciples' feet in full consciousness that Judas is going to betray him. But of course, the disciples see none of this. Nor, I imagine, would we have seen any of this. Although, perhaps like me, you read these passages and you say, these foolish disciples, if I had been there, I would have spotted the betrayer months ago. But it's interesting that John tells us not only did they not spot the betrayer, but when Jesus dismissed him, they all assumed that he had gone on mercy ministry. There was something about the esteem in which he was held. He was, after all, the treasurer of the disciple band. They had entrusted him with the money. They didn't know he was putting his hand into the purse and using the money to his own advantage, but outwardly they trusted him fully. And all they could project if Jesus were sending him out of the room was he was going to get something to serve them food in the coming days, or perhaps to give something to the poor at the time of Passover. And it's such a reminder to us, isn't it, that apostasy... Turning away from Jesus Christ, turning our backs on Jesus Christ, happens invisibly and very subtly, imperceptibly, so that even those who may be our best friends don't understand what is happening in our heart. raises two questions, I think. One is the question, how did Jesus know this? Part of the answer is given us in this passage. He cites the 41st Psalm, Psalm of David. And just at one point in that Psalm, Jesus sees that David's experience intersected with the experience of the promised King and Messiah, that for all his glory, someone who was close to him would reject him and betray him. So Jesus' knowledge of the Scriptures prepared him for the event itself. Actually, the knowledge of the Scriptures always prepares us for events like this. We may not know exactly what it is that is going to happen, but we are counseled and advised always to be sensitive to things like this. And then, of course, at least at the human level, there were the little tell-tale signs. One of them had happened just a few days before, when uh, you remember that uh, in the home of Lazarus, Mary had taken the expensive ointment and she had anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And uh, Judas had spoken up. He was, after all, the financial man. He said, "You know this." This this precious perfumed ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And at least at the human level, that was a clue to Jesus. It was a clue to Jesus that uh, Judas Iscariot was thinking more about the black and the red columns of what the disciples were doing than he was thinking about love for the Lord Jesus. ties in, doesn't it, very strikingly with this morning's message, how much we think about money. And the more we think about money, the less we think about the Lord Jesus. And he, he'd given it away. I'm sure some of the other disciples, you know, that's an insight. That's quite right. But Jesus saw it as a revelation that there was no love for him in the heart of the disciple band's treasurer. And there's another question it raises, and I think the question it raises is, uh, how would we know this kind of thing was beginning to endanger us? Slipping away from the Lord Jesus. One way is this. When Judas Iscariot saw grace and love in the heart of a woman for the Savior, he responded to it with anti-grace. He responded to it with a sense of this, this lavishness of love shouldn't be seen in public. There's something indecent about that. You know, you encounter that kind of thing in all kinds of ways. I think we all do. We see some slightly nutty Christians showing amazing expressions of love for the Lord Jesus. And instead of saying, Lord, you are worthy of the love of the nuttiest Christians I know, we draw back and we sit so embarrassing this kind of thing. We would do so much better. We would make such better impact on the world if we didn't show this lavishness of love for the Lord Jesus. That's actually a danger signal in our hearts. And then what happens with Judas, I think, is quite simply this. When his sin is unmasked, instead of confessing it, he disguises it. Not so clear in John's gospel, but it's certainly clear in Matthew's gospel When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples, with one exception, all seem to have said the same thing. According to Matthew, they said, Lord, is it I? And Judas Iscariot almost said the same thing. Judas Iscariot, however, said, teacher, is it I? And in that context, all the difference in the world, how how easy it is to respect and admire and honor Jesus as teacher, but we're given this little indication that even there in the upper room, he disguised the sinfulness of his heart by language that was almost exactly right, but was actually exactly wrong. Because it was an indication that he wasn't yielding to the Lord Jesus as his Lord. And of course, there's something else here, isn't there? Because Jesus, within these last few minutes, had shown him twin kindnesses. The kindness, the inexpressible kindness of bowing down before him and... uh, you know, sometimes I think this is a scene I would love a great artist to paint, and then I think, no, no great artist could properly paint this scene. Capture the the emotion of the occasion when the Savior of sinners kneels before the betrayer of the Savior of sinners and, and shows kindness in washing his feet. And then this little kindly act of giving him something from the bowl, sharing the bowl with him. These are both acts of of beautiful, gentle kindness and love on the part of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does Judas Iscariot do? I don't think he was at all embarrassed about Jesus washing his feet. I think he'd begun to think that was what Jesus was for. And so he should do it. And he treated the love of Jesus with a heart of indifference. That's an enormously scary reality in the Christian life. When we, we hear the word of the Lord Jesus, we hear the praises of the Lord Jesus, and uh, it's all ho-hum. You know, we can, we can take it or leave it. There is no affection left in us. And at the end of the day, he sees, doesn't he quite literally sees the value of Jesus as the value of a slave. The rulers are desperate to get Jesus out of the way. I suspect they would have paid a very high price for Jesus. But Judas Iscariot is willing, at the end of the day, to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. It's a real, this, this second uh, part, this second panel in this triptych is, is such, a, such a striking word of counsel to us. To come back to him if we're drifting from him. To stay near to him so that we may be sensitive to his every move. So Jesus expresses his distress. Jesus identifies his betrayer. And then in the third panel, Jesus settles his destiny. You see this in verses 27 through 29. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. It's almost as though right to this point, Judas is fully responsible for everything that he does. And now he is a prisoner of an alien dark power. But you notice what happens. Jesus, who appears to be the victim of both Judas and Satan, is actually entirely the Lord of the situation. He is going to suffer. He's going to experience what Christians have often referred to as his Passive suffering, his passive obedience, he will be bound, he will be crucified. But uh, the one who is the victim is actually the master of the situation. It is he staring into the eyes of Judas Iscariot through whose eyes Satan appears now to be staring back. It is Jesus who says, Jesus who is Lord, who says what you're going to do, do quickly. Because, of course, as we learned right at the beginning, he knew, verse 1 of chapter 13, that his hour had come to depart out of the world. And so Jesus himself is master of the situation. Until he regally bows his head upon the cross, he may appear to be the victim But he is the one who is deciding his destiny. He is the one who is giving himself to the work of the cross. And he is the one, as John, I think, hints here, who is giving himself to dealing with the dark power of Satan in order to break that power and to set his prisoners free. You notice the text that Jesus relies on here from the 41st Psalm. It is the one who shared my table, who lifts up his heel against me. Now, that may, that may simply mean something like uh, Judas showed a quick pair of heels, turned his back on Jesus so that Jesus would see his heel. But I think there's a more profound significance in what John is saying here that fits in with the whole way he thinks about what Jesus is doing. Because you know the very first reference to a heel in the Bible, don't you, in Genesis 3.15? The text on which the whole of the rest of the Bible is actually based. The text that defines the whole history of God's redemptive purposes. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will be in perpetual conflict until the day comes when there is a final conflict between a single seed of the woman and the serpent himself. And in that hand-to-hand conflict, as the serpent seeks to crush the Savior, all he will be able to do is to catch at his heel. And the heel of the Savior will crush the head of the serpent. It's a further indication to us that what Jesus has come to do is to defeat the powers of darkness that master and grip men and women and boys and girls' lives and set us free to live for him as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Master, and as our friend. The remarkable paradox is these two men uh, stand, as it were, as Jesus perhaps gets up as Judas leaves the room, as they stand for the last time facing one another in the fellowship of the apostles before Judas will come again in the darkness and kiss Jesus in order to betray him. In that conflict, Judas Appears to be the free master but he is actually the slave and Jesus who is about to be bound is actually the master who is about to set his people free. And then something very remarkable happens, doesn't it? After receiving the morsel of bread, verse 30, Judas immediately went out In these fantastic words that that say profound things to us just in a half sentence. And it was night. That's where Judas was. He was in the darkness. Men loved the darkness. They wouldn't come to the light. Jesus was the light. And now Judas was turning his back on him and going into the darkness. And then the atmosphere changes again. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. He was in full sovereign control. He was about to defeat the evil one. He was about to bring about the pardon of our guilt and of our sin. He was about to be lifted up on the cross and to be exalted as the Savior who would draw men and women from every tongue and language and people and nation to bow down before him and call him Lord. And now the room was clean. And Jesus begins to speak To his disciples about things I think he'd never shared with them before. And it seemed as though the room began to fill with glory. Now, sometimes you're in a social situation and somebody leaves the room, and it's almost as though everybody, they've gone. And the disciples didn't know that. But from this point on, Jesus began to reveal to them the riches of his glory. And John was able to say, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's for another night. But the Jesus of the next night, which is in the future, is the Jesus of this night, which lies in the past. And thank God he is the Jesus of tonight. The one who's tasted our distress in order that he might be a merciful friend to us. The one who was betrayed into the hands of his Enemies, in order that he might conquer for us. The one who is destined to be crucified, in order that he might die for us. The one who brings us in this way into a taste of his shame, in order that we may see him in the fullness of his grace and glory. He is truly, all over the world, the same. Today, as he was yesterday, and he will be no different when tomorrow comes. What a Savior! Trusting Him, loving Him, growing in Him, or perhaps been wandering away from Him. This would be a great passage to bring you back to a great Savior. Heavenly Father, We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for all that he is and the beauty of his person and the grace and loveliness of his character. We confess to you we are so unlike him, but we want him. We want to be near him. We want to be beside him when we hurt and him to be beside us. We want him to keep us from denying him and betraying him so that we may be faithful to him. We want to know more and more of our Lord Jesus and to know that today and all our todays, he will be everything to us that he was as we read of him in all the yesterdays of the gospel. So hear us. Help us to know him better during the course of this week, to love him more fully, to follow him more nearly, and to serve him more faithfully. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace cpcorg Once again, that website address is S-O-L-A-S hyphen c p c thanks for listening